I'd count it a highlight and a privilege to be able to sing those lyrics with you, with particularly this body of believers. Um, Because I know many, as we sing that, those are not vain, empty words, but those are the desire of your heart. And you've demonstrated that throughout your life. And it's a joy to be able to to pastor uh, each one of you. And so thank you for your fellowship uh, in the Spirit with one another, but particularly with me. In light of that, uh, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be looking at uh, just a few verses in Ephesians chapter 2 that speak to God's purpose and uh, function, design of the church. I think it might be helpful to begin uh, halfway through in our reading. We're going to look at verses 19 through 22, but I'm going to begin in verse 11 just to just to give a little bit of context. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. By now Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace... To those who are near. For through him we have we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. And so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can we have these words to tell us what the church is about and its plan and its foundation and its function. And we pray that you would give illumination that we might appreciate your designs for the church. And also that we might function more according to your designs for the church. We pray that you would give insight and understanding. As well as practical help in guiding us to know how we might best live out this text in our lives. And as a body together. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the book of Ephesians, these five chapters, really unveil to us God's plan and purpose uh, of the church. I like to describe it as God's 
It's the revelation of God's plan to bring in his kingdom. Another way you could think of it is like his battle strategy. How is it that God seeks to bring about reconciliation with man? For we know that at the fall, God's plan to dwell with man upon the earth in the Garden of Eden was crushed. Because sin came into the earth, the world, and death through sin, and so death corrupted everything. And sin had corrupted everything. And, and so from that point on, God began to unveil his plan of, for how he was going to bring about the reconciliation of all things. How he was going to establish a way for man to once again dwell with God. And so we, it begins by, by seeing him set apart Abraham. And then after Abraham set apart and his descendants, they go to Egypt. And as they come out of Egypt, God establishes the tabernacle. And then after the tabernacle that was meant to be a dwelling place of God amidst those people came the temple. And so there's this unveiling of God's plan to dwell with his people until Christ comes. And Christ dies and is is resurrected. And Ephesians reveals how God plans ultimately to bring about that full restoration. And what Ephesians says is that it's going to come about through the establishment of the church. God seeks to bring about reconciliation with man through the church, not just through politics, not through armies, not through education, nor through just pious individuals going to other people and sharing the gospel. Certainly he'll use all these things, but what Ephesians lays out for us is God's plan, God's strategy to reach the nations will happen through the church. So the church is not supplemental to God's rescue operation. It's critical And many people often think of the church really as just a peripheral part of their Christianity. They think that God saved them just so they could have a relation with him, which is absolutely true. But it's far more than that. He saved them so that they might walk in obedience, so they might know him, but also so that they might be a part of his grand rescue operation through the building up of the family of God. Some don't even see the a much need for being a part of a local body of believers. And they see the church just as there to give occasional encouragements and refreshment spiritually. Or maybe guidance at times. But that's really like a wide receiver thinking that he doesn't really need the rest of the team. In fact, he's all that matters. Or a shortstop thinking he could take on a whole baseball team all by himself. By himself. And if we were to see that, we think, man, that's ridiculous. It, the, the, the whole team is necessary. And the shortstop's necessary too. But the whole team is necessary in order to bring about a win. What Paul lays out in the book of Ephesians is that God's strategy for establishing his eternal kingdom will only be accomplished through the church. And so in the few verses before us, Paul explains really the nature of the church and its purpose. 
And I've broken down this passage into really four different parts. Begins in verse 19 explaining the, the, the new family of the church. God's bringing about a new family. Including not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. And then he explains the foundation of the church. It was built upon apostles and prophets. And then critically, most critically, Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. And then he explains how the church develops in the, in the formulation of the church in verse 20. And then finally, the function of the church. And that is that it, it was designed that we might be a dwelling place of God, really a new temple. So let's look first of all at the family of the church, the new family of the church. Picture in your mind with me a land that is covered in complete Darkness, thick darkness, a land where there is a complete absence of light. And this suffocating darkness forces the residents to wander around aimlessly. But then imagine that a rumor was heard. And word began to spread that there was a light in a distant land. It had been discovered upon a mountaintop. Miles away in the east. Light had been seen emanating from on top of that mountain. And on top of that mountain there was a palace. A palace that was made entirely of glass. And there was light emanating from this palace wherein a wealthy family lived. And this family dwelt together in peace and security and harmony. And they were led by a humble and gentle prince. And he provided for them food and instruction and leisure for the whole family as they basked in the radiant light of that palace. But the light from that palace was the only place in all of that land where there was any light. And as word began to spread about this palace of light, some of these dwellers in darkness set out to find and discover if such a place were actually real. And those who were able to climb the mountain and to see the palace of light soon had all of their their hopes dashed as they saw that the, the entrance to that palace was barred. And their efforts were of no avail. The walls of the palace were impenetrable. And so these dwellers in darkness were forced to remain in their plight. And all they could do was simply grieve their miserable situation and stare longingly at that comfortable family living in the peaceful habitation of that palace. And now imagine that after many years, the prince of that palace decided to descend And open the gate to those hopeless dwellers in darkness. And then imagine the joy of those people at hearing that they would be given access. They could leave this land of darkness and actually enter into this place of light and join the prince and his family. And not only would they be allowed access into this palace, but they would be offered an opportunity to sit down at table and eat with them. But not only that, they would be allowed to actually live with them there. 
And then after that, they hear not only will they be allowed to stay with them. In fact, they will now be given an opportunity to become part of the household. To join them forever as fellow members of the family, having equal rights with the prince and all of his children. This was the news that Paul shared with the Ephesians. In particularly in Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 20 then, 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You see, it's, it's important that we remember what it was like to be a Gentile at this time. To, to remember that when God set Abraham apart to, to be the father of this new people, that in the establishment of Israel, part of their design was to be set apart from the other nations. That's what it meant to be a Jew. If you read the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy, everything they were about their life and worship practice was to be utterly distinct. They were not to co-mingle with the other nations. Certainly other nations could come and dwell with them and live with them, but the Jews were not supposed to embrace anything about the other nations. There was complete cultural separation. But it's also important to to point out that Paul had explained earlier in this letter that that element of cultural separation was no longer a distinguishing element for those who worship God. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. See, Now Christ has allowed both Jews and Gentiles to be united. Gentiles, in other words, are now allowed access to become part of God's family. And that's the point that Paul makes in verse 19. That the church is made up of now both Jews and Gentiles. That is, the Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens. Let me just draw out those terms a little bit for you. The word strangers refers to one who's a traveler in a country. And and at this time period, anybody that was traveling through a country, they had no rights in that country. They were vulnerable. The only rights they would have would have been those that might have been established through a treaty, if a treaty had been established. But they were vulnerable to whoever they came across. Moreover, foreigners were often viewed with suspicion. In fact, that's the, the word strangers here is translated that way because they were seen as strangers. It's actually a synonym for the word enemy. I mean, so they were viewed with absolute suspicion. You're walking through, I mean, um, if, you were to, if you were to be a stranger in a foreign land, they would see you as a threat, not of somebody to, to care for. The other word that's used is aliens. This refers to one who's a resident alien, somebody who lives in a country but isn't actually a citizen of that country. Therefore, they would have no rights either. And again, this would be a very precarious position. To get a sense of what this would be like, just imagine what it would be living in as an American in Afghanistan right now. Again, you'd be seen as a threat to the people. And you also would feel threatened. Your life would be in danger. 
And this helps us understand the theological point that Paul is making here. That the Gentiles who were once without hope and were separated from God, chapter 2, verse 12, have now become fellow citizens. They were once strangers, aliens, enemies, suspicious, threats to God's people. Now they're actually part of the family. This word fellow citizens describes that the, the Gentiles, especially the, the Ephesians, are now considered fellow members with the saints who have lived throughout history. Abraham and Noah and Joseph and Joshua and Elijah and David. But even more than that, they're now considered part of the family. Fellow members of the household of God, it says. Literally what the term means is householders. Those who live together. It comes from the Greek word oikos, which is a critical word in this, um, in this text. It might be familiar to you because it's also a, a brand of Greek yogurt. So every time you buy the Greek yogurt oikos, you can think of this passage maybe. But this word is actually, I think, the centerpiece of these verses because Paul uses it again and again and again. It's almost like in his mind, he, as he's writing, Paul's thinking, well, speaking of house, let me illustrate for you once again how you're really like a house. Because you'll note all the following words share this same root of oikos, being built upon, building, being built together, a dwelling place. All those come from, have the root oikos. And so as Paul brings up the point that Gentiles are now considered part of God's household, he just decides to take this illustration and run with it. So not only are they new to this house, he goes on to illustrate they're actually part of the structure of the house. The house is made by them and with them. And in verse 22, he calls it God's dwelling place. So not only do they dwell in peace in the house, but again, the, the Jews and the Gentiles are now actually pieces of the house. Which brings us to the foundation of the church. The first aspect of this new building that Paul points to is the foundation. Verse 20. It says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Again, this word being built has its root oikos. And, and Paul says that this, this house is really built on the foundation of three things. Apostles, prophets, and Christ Jesus. So let's define these terms a bit. Apostles. Uh, the word comes from the Greek word apostolos, which simply means sent ones. Those who have been sent out. And, and we took, when we hear the word apostles, we tend to think of primarily the twelve that Jesus sent out to to spread the gospel to all the nations, to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But in the New Testament, we actually see this word applied to more than the twelve. It's applied to Paul. It's also applied to Barnabas in Acts 14.4, when he was sent out by the church of Antioch along with Paul to his church planting ministry among the Gentiles. It's also used to, it's applied to James, the Lord's brother, in 1 Corinthians 15.7. And then Romans 16, verse 7, applies the term 
to two people you might not have even heard of, Andronicus and Junius. And apparently these were men, like Barnabas, who had been uh, part of a church and then had been sent out to help plant new churches to people who had not yet heard the gospel. And of course, these apostles wouldn't have had the same authority as the twelve who had been directly commissioned by Christ, yet they would have had significant authority because they would have been the only people who had been taught the gospel and had been instructed in the scriptures amongst these new people groups whom they were planting churches amongst. And I believe this is the kind of apostles who are being referred to here because they're often listed right alongside of prophets in the New Testament. They were foundations to the church and that they were church planters of local churches. And they were the first men to preach the gospel to the communities that would eventually become local churches. The second term is, is prophets. Prophets. And it's frequently, again, mentioned alongside the Apostle in the New Testament, like in 1 Corinthians 12, also Ephesians 3 and Ephesians 4. And literally what this word means is those who speak forth or those who proclaim. And in the Old Testament, prophets were those whom God inspired to speak forth his word. And some of those prophecies became scripture and some of it didn't. They were some of those prophecies in the Old Testament, even Old Testament prophets were just given to specific individuals or specific um, people large groups and small groups, to know what God's will would have been for a specific situation. And again, they did this by receiving direct revelation from God and then spoke exactly what God told them to say. And Peter clarifies this for us in his epistle when he says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. So prophets didn't just say, well, I think God wants you to do this. No, the Holy Spirit moved them to speak very specific things. And so they were, they had spiritual authority because the Spirit was speaking directly through them. And so it's logical to conclude, if this is how the Old Testament prophets functioned, this is how the New Testament's prophets functioned as well. They weren't merely preachers, but they they actually had they were speaking God's word directly. And 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 I believe that they were only they only lasted really for a short period of time, and this is why. Because when the early church began, the canon of scripture had not been fully completed. Even the recognized scriptures such as the epistles hadn't been copied and disseminated throughout all the church. And so the Lord established prophets so that the local body of believer might know well, what God's will might be for a certain situation. Because they didn't have all of the Bible. Certainly not all of the New Testament. Very few people actually had access to all the scriptures. And so prophets were a gift to the church so that people would know God's will for an immediate circumstance in question. And so I think the best way to understand apostles is that they were men sent out by Jesus to help plant 
churches or they were men sent out by the church to help plant churches. And that prophets were believers, again, who received direct revelation for the purpose of knowing God's will in a specific circumstance. And when you understand those words to function that way, it makes sense that Paul would say the church was established or built upon the foundation of the apostles, because they were the church planters, and prophets, because they're the ones informing the church how to function. The third element in the foundation is, of course, the most important. Christ Jesus, who is the cornerstone. The term cornerstone is actually used by Jesus to describe himself in Matthew 21. Verse 42, he's quoting the Psalms. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is obviously from Psalm 118. And Jesus' point is that the builders, that is the Jewish leaders, didn't recognize that he was the cornerstone. And that in rejecting him, they were rejecting the critical piece for what they're seeking to establish. Because the the Pharisees and the Jews in general wanted to bring about God's kingdom. They wanted to see God's kingdom established upon the earth. That's what they, that's what they were seeking with all their heart. And when they, some people thought that Jesus was the Messiah, that's again what their expectations were. But when they rejected Christ, they're rejecting the critical piece for seeing that kingdom get established. Because they saw him as worthless and even destructive to their aims. But what they considered as worthless, we in the church worship. And the rejection of Jesus as the cornerstone is wild when you, when you consider that what the cornerstone actually was. The, the cornerstone at this time period was the, the most critical stone in a building. It was part of the foundation and it was the first stone laid um, that would then be followed by the rest of the foundation and by which every other stone in the building would be measured. And it would be laid at the angle of the building and the builder would use it as a standard for the bearings of all the different walls. And you could see why this would be this this metaphor would be so fitting of Christ. See, Jesus himself is the cornerstone of God's new household. And he's also the foundation of the church. And also the standard by which all the other stones in that building are to be measured against. See, without Jesus, you have no new, no new building, no church. You got nothing. Moreover, any stone that's not being shaped into conformity with the cornerstone is unfit to be a part of the building. The whole point is to be a build, a, a stone that fits into place so that the rest of the building can continue to be built up. If the stone doesn't fit, if the stone isn't getting shaped in line with the cornerstone, it's not going to work. So Christ is critical to the foundation and the superstructure of the church. And then in next verse 21, Paul elucidates this, um, the second use of the cornerstone. That is, Jesus is the principal stone by which all the rest of the stones are measured and fit together. 
Jesus is the cornerstone and that he's the foundation, along with apostles and prophets, the critical piece. But he's also the stone by which all the other stones are measured against. He says, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So again, Paul likens the church to a building whereby each stone is singularly placed together and then fitted together until it continues to grow. As he builds, the, the builder analyzes each stone and measures it to see where it's, that exact stone should fit within the church building. Each piece gets tested against the cornerstone and then shaped according to the need of the building. So imagine sometime in a month or so, you get invited over to Jason's house and he's going to show you this wall that he's building. He's going to lay out for you how this, this building of this stone wall is going to work. So he explains to you, I have this rock here and I've got to get it into place in this wall. And I need to get it to fit this exact place, this particular place. So first what I'm going to do is I'm going to measure it against the cornerstone and make sure it fits in line with the rest of the building. And then I'm going to find the, the it, niche for it right here, the right niche for it. However, you, you'll see that it, this, the stone needs a little bit of shaping. And so I'm going to take this other stone and I'm going to blunt its edge so it will fit right. And then I'm going to rub it up against this other stone to smooth it out. And then I'm going to polish it with this stone over here. And then I'm going to set it into place with this one here. And after working it over a bit with all the other stones, likewise, this building is going to fit together perfectly. And this is the same process that Jesus uses when he seeks to build the church. He takes each stone and fits it where it needs to be placed, but he uses the other stones to help fit it likewise into place as well. As he says, the whole structure being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And what's important to notice is that Paul focuses on the edification of the entire body here, not just each individual stone. So each individual stone is important because you're going to have holes in the wall without them. But the point isn't the stones, the individual stones. The point is the building up of the entire body. That's the focus. That's the aim. That's the mission. Not just the shaping of the individual stones. The individual stones get shaped for the building. Do you see that? They're for the building. And we need to think of sanctification not just on an individual level, therefore, but we need to think of sanctification really about being the growth and the development and the refining of the church. We tend, because we're Americans and we're individualistic, and we, not only are we proud and selfish, but we live in a culture that glorifies selfishness. Even the church often does that. But we need to just clear our minds of those notions and recognize it's not about the individual as much as it is the corporate body. And not just one local body, but the universal body. That's what Paul's saying. 
really in this context, the sanctification of individuals is relatively insignificant. And note here, how is it that the church grows? We talk, there's lots of seminars and conferences, sermons on church growth. How does the church grow? Maybe you might initially think evangelism. Well, that's true. You need to have stones in order to build a wall. Really, the point here is the church grows as each part is shaped together, as each part does its share in the shaping of one another and as it grows together. The church grows as the whole body grows in Christ's likeness. Each piece is fit together. The point is the church is something that grows together as a unit. Corporate growth is the aim of the church, not just individual growth. And we need to get that in our minds because I think it's it's just a maybe a default assumption that we have in the church that when we get saved, growth, I just need to care about most, first and foremost, my growth. And so we, th- we even think about churches in terms of how are they going to help me grow? Not a horrible question to ask. But we need to be thinking about how can I help the church grow? Because the whole church is the point, not just the individual. We need to think about that even in terms of sermons. There may be a sermon that you're like, I just didn't get a whole lot out of. But it's not about you, really. It's about the church. Maybe that was a blessing to somebody else. Maybe somebody else really need to hear that. We need to think in terms not just of what we want, but what does the rest of the church need? Not just what does the local body need. We need to think about what does the rest of the universal church need, really. We think beyond just our individual selves. So again, it's not just the local church, not just one denomination, not just one nation, not just one period of time, but the whole church's growth from Pentecost until Christ returns. With every tribe, tongue, and nation in full participation. So really, you might be the godliest person that's ever walked the face of the earth. Who cares if you're not helping the rest of the church grow? I mean, really? Like, that's great. Good for you. But that's not the point. You might have the greatest amount of stats as a wide receiver, but if your team is the worst, who cares? I mean, you have a great amount of stats on the most home runs for your fifth grade Little League team. Great. Team lost every game. The point is winning, right? At least in sports. It's not bad to individually grow, but that's not the point. The goal of the church is corporate holiness, not just individual holiness. And the success, again, of the church... We often measure in terms of numbers. We often measure the success of a church in terms of finances or the popularity of the pastor or how nice their building is or how many programs they have. But none of that has anything to do with what Paul is saying here. The success of the church is what? What does a successful church look like? Christ-like church members. Church members who truly love one another and want to see one another grow in Christ-likeness. That's a successful church. I don't care how nice the building is, how cool the pastor is, even how great a teacher the pastors might be. 
What matters is, is the church growing? Are the individuals growing together in Christ-likeness? So principles take away from this understanding of the church. I hope you can see that. First of all, it demonstrates the significance, really, of each and every individual member. There's not a single individual in the church that doesn't matter. All members do matter. Every Christian matters to Christ. Every Christian matters to the church. But at the same time, there's relative insignificance about each individual. Because it's the corporate whole that really matters. I mean, just think again of of how Paul lived and how he wrote. He He was interested in individuals, but what he cared most about was the progress of the whole. That's why he went to all the different nations. That's why he ministered to all these different churches. And recognize also that each stone is important, but only the cornerstone is vital. Only the cornerstone is vital. Each individual also needs to pursue holiness. Each stone needs to be shaped. The point of being a part of the body is to be shaped into fitting to help support the whole of the structure. And this is really why attendance and commitment to the local body of believers is so important. It, again, it's not about, um, it's not just about what you get out of something, but really it's, it's, it's how every individual need, we need one another. We need to be committed to one another. And we need to be with one another as much as we possibly can. Each of us also needs to recognize our importance in building up of the church. Again, because the aim is for completeness. Really, there's a direct application for world missions. The aim is to see the whole church, not just here in Oregon, but throughout the world, grow in maturity. And so as we think about our, how we participate in world missions, we need to think about how can our church help not just spread the gospel, but see churches get established that likewise will grow in Christ's likeness as well. So we've had the foundation of the church, also the formulation of the church. Let's look now at the function of the church. Point four, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. It says you also. Notice it's, it's second person, plural, you as in you all. So again, the focus, he's not just talking about individual believers, you as a whole body. You all are being built up, same root word, oikos, we've looked at, into a dwelling place of God, root word, oikos again. And again, this describes the function or the purpose of the church. God is building the church so that It would be a building for his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he himself, to dwell in. The purpose of the church is to be a dwell, a place for God to dwell in. In other words, it's the new tabernacle. It's the new temple. It's the new Garden of Eden. It's the God's ultimate design for his reversal of the fall. See, again, Adam and Eve once dwelt in God's presence in the garden and then they ruined it. Then you had the tabernacle and the temple, uh, which allowed God's presence to dwell uh, with his people. But again, there were still barriers. Well, now in the church, there's no barriers. There's no Jew. There's no Gentile. 
You can have complete access and it's like dwelling constantly with God. And yes, the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell each individual member, but the point isn't about the individual indwelling, it's the corporate indwelling. So now in the church, God actually dwells in his people. And so there's, in a real sense, when we gather together as a church body, we're coming to meet with God. And that doesn't happen through the singing or some mystical experience. In a sense, it happens when we hear his word, read his word, and we pray. But, but I think even maybe a, another way we need to think about it is we meet with God when we're dwelling together, coming together as a corporate body, because the church is about the corporate dwelling of God with his people. We come together to be with God as we're with his people. So now God dwells with us as a corporate body across nations and across time. One closing illustration. Um, Julie and I have a friend. Actually, she visited here with her family a couple weeks ago. She grew up in Israel um, in a Jewish Christian household. And her parents had immigrated from Romania to Israel in order to help uh, plant churches in Israel. Well, there are very few Christians in Israel. In fact, they're largely persecuted. And she grew up having to face persecution for her faith. However, one of the results of this persecution that she experienced, as well as the other members of the church body, was that they were, they, they were drawn inexplicably close to one another. And whenever they would have a church event, she says they would just stay all day. They'd at least stay for hours after the service was over, but often all day and they would have meals together. Even on the weekdays, the church members would frequently just gather together just to spend time together. Because it was only when they were with other believers that they felt comfortable and they felt loved and cared for and safe. In other words, they truly functioned like a family. The, the people's lives there revolved around the church, and in a good way. And some people might think, well, gosh, that sounds awfully cult-like. But the difference between being a cult and a loving family should be obvious. Because a cult just wants to control people. It wants to dictate to people how they need, all the decisions they need to make. But the church should not be an institution seeking to control and administrate the lives of people, but rather people seeking to love and comfort and care for one another. In other words, the distinguishing mark isn't control, it's love. And it's their love for one another that compels them to want to spend time together, to want to see them grow, and to want to meet their various needs. And it's, it's my prayer and my petition that that's the kind of church that we would be. That we would be a church that's really known by its love for one another and not just our desire to individually grow in Christ-likeness, but our commitment to see one another grow in Christ-likeness. And so that's why we minister to the Word together. That's why we pray for one another. That's why we seek to serve one another. Is because we realize we individually aren't so much significant as much as the growth of the entire body, which is what's significant. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask that you would help us to be the church as you've designed it to be. 
that you would continue to help us see the ways in which we need to repent in our thinking or in our actions or in behavior or attitudes. You continue to help solidify our understanding of the church and our doctrine. And Lord, that, that you would also continue to work in our hearts, that we'd continue to die to ourselves, that we wouldn't seek to make a name for ourselves as much as we'd be seeking to care for the needs of those around us. And Lord, we ask that you would make us to be the church as you've designed it to be. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.